Hi, welcome to The Halfling. I'm your host, Jaron Pack, and this is episode 13, Elrond's Crazy Family Tree. We've spent three episodes on Elrond so far, and we still haven't even come close to the Lord of the Rings content that defines so much of his late career. I hope you're all starting to understand the motivation I had to create a series on this guy. He may not be obscure, but the bulk of his career sure is. Elrond's story starts in captivity in the First Age, then he becomes an elven wunderkind who becomes second in command under the High King Gilgalad for the first half of the Second Age. From there, he fights Sauron, literally and behind the scenes, and establishes Rivendell as a primary stronghold to resist the darkness spreading across the land. He's given one of the three elven rings and told to defend his new fortress, which he does until the Last Alliance gathers there at the end of the age, and they all head off to take down Sauron. After that war ends, in a mostly good way, Elrond settles down, marries his wife, Galadriel and Celeborn's daughter Calabrian, and they proceed to have three children, twin sons Eladon and Elrohir, and a daughter, Arwen. While this covers Elrond's immediate nuclear family, though, last time we ran out of time to dive into the half-elven lord's more extended family tree, which is where we'll pick things up today. I have to warn you, though, as I went through the research for this episode, it didn't take me long to start feeling like there was just too much left to fit all of the rest of Elrond's story into a single installment of the show. Instead, we're going to focus on fleshing out the rest of his crazy, impressive family connections today, and then next time we'll wrap up the rest of his story with his also-crazy-impressive resume of activities that take place throughout the Third Age. And we'll do that no matter what it takes. Okay, let's get started for now, shall we? Last time we ended with Elrond's wife, kids, and in-laws officially on the family tree diagram. But with all the talk about nuclear families and in-laws, you may be wondering, what about Elrond's own parents? Who are they? Now, remember, all we've heard so far is that his dad was out at sea, and his mom threw herself into the ocean in despair when their home was victimized by an elven civil war. You know, the same one that led to Elrond's childhood capture. Well... Part of the reason our hero ends up growing up in captivity is that his parents are Tolkien's mighty power couple, Earendil and Elwing. The pair reunite in the midst of the sea, Elwing is literally turned into a bird and is able to fly to her husband's boat, and once together, they sail to the Blessed Realm in the west, where they convince the angelic Valar and Maiar, along with many of the local elves, to help save the poor people of Middle-earth from the overpowering might of Morgoth. This leads to a happily ever after scenario for the good guys, at least on a macro scale, but it also means Elrond's parents end up staying away across the sea. So, Elrond's parents go missing early in his life, but they end up doing some world-saving kind of stuff and land on the shortlist for Middle-earth's greatest heroes. In the larger picture, this all makes sense, but I do feel like I need to point out that this had to be hard for little boy Elrond. I mean, his parents disappear when he's captured, and he probably thinks they're dead for quite a long while, which had to be really hard. I mean, talk about some emotional trauma during some really formative periods of life. That said, he clearly survives the experience, and his parents end up both alive and heroes to boot. 
And the best part is, the list of Elrond's famous relatives doesn't even stop there. Not by a long shot. Elrond's maternal grandfather is also a guy named Dior. He's the son of another of Tolkien's major power couples. I'm talking about Baron and Luthien, a couple that a lot of people will recognize. In this case, the man, Baron, marries the princess Luthien, who herself happens to be the daughter of an elvish king and his Maiar queen, who has taken on a physical form. Did I say all that pretty fast? Yeah, I know. And the genealogy gets complicated here, for sure. But here's the takeaway. All of these highfalutin nuptials means Elrond's maternal side of the family has men, elves, and even a Maiar. And we can't even stop there. Elrond's paternal grandparents are equally important. Their names are Tuor and Idril. Again, in this case, the man Tuor marries the elven princess Idril, and the pair of lovebirds have Yarendil, the man-elf who ultimately helps to save the world. All of this means Elrond has a smattering of elvish, mannish, and even a dash of Maiar blood in his history. And before you start thinking that this kind of thing happens every day in Middle-earth, it's actually really rare. In the appendix of The Return of the King, Tolkien explains that, quote, There were three unions of Eldar and the Adain, Luthien and Baron, Idril and Tuor, Arwen and Aragorn, end quote. Just to clarify, the Eldar referred to there are the elves, and the Idain are a specific group of men. So, when you break it down, the first two of the couples listed are Elrond's great-grandparents and grandparents, respectively. And the last couple are his children. Everywhere you look, this guy is surrounded by these super-important unions of elves and men. This is why he becomes one of a very select group of people known as the Perithil, or Half-Elven. Don't ask me why the title leaves the man and Maiar parts out. Seems unfair to me. But anyway, the simplified name basically implies that its owner is descended from one of the three major unions of elves and men. In this case, Elrond is connected to two of those pairs, and his daughter forms half of the third one when she ultimately marries Aragorn. All of these connections, particularly to the races of elves and men, means eventually certain people from those bloodlines are allowed to choose between the fate of elves and men, namely immortality or mortality. This area of the mythology is difficult to summarize, and I know this has been a lot of information, but in essence, if someone chooses to be an elf, it appears that their descendants can still give up that choice and opt for mortality. That's what happens to Arwen when she chooses a mortal life. But get this, the other direction doesn't work quite the same way, and we need to look at Elrond's last important family member to get an example of what I'm talking about. Elrond's twin brother, Elros, chooses to be a mortal man instead of an elf. He goes on to found the kingdom of Numenor and spends over 400 years ruling as its first king. So, even though he chooses mortality, he gets a really long run at the deal. However, none of his descendants appear to have the choice to become an immortal elf. Instead, they remain quite mortal, to the point where they even attack the Valar in jealousy at their lack of immortality, leading to the destruction of their nation. So, on the one side we have Arwen, who is allowed to live for thousands of years and then give that immortality up for a mortal life. On the other side, we have the descendants of Elrond's mortal brother, who don't even get a choice. They're born mortal and stay mortal, no matter how big of a tantrum they throw about it. See what I mean? It's hard to summarize and still really confusing anyway. But I needed to cover it because Elrond is literally called Half-Elven, he's one of the Perithil, 
and he is the one who chooses to remain immortal while his brother founds this massive nation through his choice of mortality. It's just a really big dynamic in the family. Now, one last side note we need to talk about here is the question of Aragorn and Arwen's family history. If you follow the line of Numenorean kings long enough, you end up with Aragorn. In other words, one of Elros' descendants is Aragorn. So yes, when Aragorn marries Arwen, this means he's technically related to his wife. However, before you roll your eyes and start making gagging noises, let's put this into perspective by quickly running through how many generations further down the family tree Aragorn is when compared to Arwen. And we've got other stuff to cover here, so I'm not going to take a long time explaining everything. Just buckle in and let's go through this quickly. Before he becomes the king at the end of the story, Aragorn is the 16th chieftain of the Dúnedain of Arnor. The first of these chieftains is the son of the 15th king of the small kingdom of Arthedain. This is a splinter kingdom that appears after Gondor's sister kingdom of Arnor is destroyed midway through the Third Age. The first king of Arthedain is the son of the 10th king of Arnor. Before Arnor, the royal line runs back to Númenor itself, where we find more than 20 more generations, if you want to get all the way up to Elros. Add all of these numbers up, and you get over 60 generations between Elrond's brother and Aragorn. So, if you think that cousins 60 times removed is inappropriate, go ahead and start throwing up. I won't stand in your way. All I'll say is that Tolkien came from a world where British royalty was fine with intermarrying at a much closer rate than 60th cousins, so the fact that he would have something remotely like that in his stories kinda makes sense. It's also worth noting that the last king of Numenor is a villain who forces his first cousin to marry him, and it's seen as an abomination. It literally says in the Silmarillion, quote, But Pharazon took her to wife against her will doing evil in this, and evil also in that the laws of Numenor did not permit the marriage, even in the royal house, of those more nearly akin than cousins in the second degree. End quote. All of that to say, for those who love to look sideways at the whole Arwen and Aragorn getting hitched thing, Tolkien clearly has some reasonable boundaries with this stuff. Alright, so, hopefully you aren't completely glazed over with all the names and family connections at this point. Trust me, the toughest part is over. For those of you who were able to keep up, it's crazy to run through just how many of Elrond's family members were so important to Middle-earth history. For everyone else, I get it. I really do. It took me a long time to research all of this and put it together in a way that remotely makes sense. As a hopefully helpful recap, here are the takeaways. Elrond is closely connected to all three of the unions of elves and men that take place in Tolkien's writings. This gives him half-elven status, which includes family connections to elves, men, and even a Maiar. He's brothers with the founder of Numenor, and the son-in-law of the leaders of Lothlorien, too. One of his very distant descendants even becomes the king of a reunited Gondor and Arnor, and marries his own daughter, too. While he does plenty of stuff on his own to earn his reputation as a wise leader and a feared warrior, it makes sense that someone with this kind of pedigree would naturally rise to the top of the power pyramid. Okay, do you see why I didn't want to just shoehorn all of that info in as we went through the story? There's just so much there to go over. And I mean, the way Tolkien wrote his stories, you could break down similar levels of complex family history for a lot of other characters too. But I have to be honest, with all of my years of obsessively studying all of this stuff, 
I just don't know if there's a single character in all of Tolkien's writings that has quite as many high-level connections as Elrond. He's a crossroads of so many different stories and family trees. It's pretty cool. It's also one of those points where I just have to stop and give Tolkien a metaphorical handshake for how well he was able to tie all of these things together. Now that we've got all of that sorted out, it's time to go through the rest of Elrond's Third Age career. Remember, we traced his early days in the First Age and his war-filled Second Age adventures so far. While Elrond steers more and more into the wise old elf feel as the Third Age plays out, that doesn't mean he's uninvolved. On the contrary, he continues to be one of the driving forces behind Middle-earth politics, which seems fitting for one of the two surviving witnesses of Sauron's initial almost defeat at the hands of the Last Alliance. It's almost like Elrond can't let that episode go. Instead, he stays in the driver's seat as Sauron prepares to return and the free peoples of Middle-earth try to survive long enough to take on the Dark Lord when he appears once again. But, again, this is too much to fit into one episode, and so I'm going to split that off and cover it next week, and we're going to stick to the story no matter what it takes until we get to the end. So, we'll pick up with that part of the action next time. That's it for now. Until next time, friends. This episode is brought to you by, well, me. And despite the fact that I've memorized whole chunks of Tolkien at this point, it still takes quite a bit of work to pull each of these together. There are also some recurring expenses that come with keeping the show on the air. So, if you're interested in helping, I set up a way to toss a few dollars toward covering costs. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. That's buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. If you make a donation, thank you very much. And either way, I hope you'll stick around for all the fun. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, friends.